this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. That's right, your questions are at the heart of the show. And if you want to send one, simply send a text or voice message to at WisemanPod or head to listentoonyourmind.com. And in return, you can expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're answering some of the questions you've sent in over the course of the season. Questions that haven't fitted into any of the other episodes, but we were desperate to answer. Questions such as, has everyone got an inner voice? The science of nature versus nurture. And why do some people pick their nose? Let's get on with the show. Let's start with a question that was sent in by listener David Baldwin via Twitter. Um, It's actually a question in two parts. So start with first part. David wants to know what's going on with people who have no filter. They think it, they speak it. Is it that they can't stop themselves or just that they don't care? Uh, well, intro. are you a blurter? This is known as no, blurting in psychology. absolutely not. Really? I'm, no, I'm an overthinker. Right, okay. Uh, well, lots of work into the psychology of blurting. You're not a blurter, are you? I have been, I've been known to blurt. Oh. But, but particularly when I get tired. Oh, that's the... when I get drunk, I might blurt. Right, okay. <laughs> is there a... the, voice, the little voice in my head that goes, this is a funny thing to say, mm-hmm. is kind of dominating over the voice that goes... Probably shouldn't say that. Worst blurt. <laughs> I've probably locked it up in a in a room in my head that I shouldn't go into. My worst blurt was I went to see a friend's magic show. Awful. Went to see them after the show. And I said to one of them, try and make them feel better. But I did blurt out. I said, oh, my goodness, at least you weren't as bad as the street entertainer I saw yesterday. They were awful. No charisma. No understanding of magic. Wasn't at all. And then I looked at them and thought, Oh, that was you, wasn't it? <laughs> no. It was out of my mouth. Oh. If only I'd have just held it in and the person confirmed that, yes, indeed, the terrible street entertainer was them. So lots of work uh, done into the psychology of blurting, and it tends to go with, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, what's called interpersonal aggression, as it's okay. known, okay. Uh, as you can imagine what that is, sensation-seeking, uh, so in enjoying the, the moment of upsetting others and feeling physiologically aroused by that. Extroversion enjoying being with others and, and stimulated by your surroundings. But most of all, uh, as you might guess, a lack of self-control. Right, yeah. But also, there's this what's called the sort of framing of the argument. So some people think when you chat with another person and perhaps you have a difference of opinion uh, or you're trying to explain where you stand on something, the key thing is to win that argument. Absolutely. And that's quite an aggressive framing of an argument versus the framing being, you know, I'm here to cooperate or to come to some sort of joint understanding or maybe even listen to the other person's point of view. Listening is weakness. That's what I was taught. Exactly. That is the perspective of the blurter. Uh, So if you are a blurter and, and you want to move away from that, it's about reframing that and going, hold on a second, you might win the battle but lose the war. That is, why are we having this discussion? What's the point? And if I blurt this out, am I just going to make the other person feel absolutely terrible so they walk away? And I might have won that particular argument, but I've lost the bigger battle or the bigger war of them being my friend or us working together in the future. So often in psychology, this comes down to this sort of short-termism with some people versus the ability to look long-term. 
And it's exactly the same with actually habit formation, uh, which is that are you doing something which short term feels good, you know, eating the cream cake or whatever it is, but long term is going to be problematic for you. And some so, people are short termists, some people are long termists. So are blurters more live in the moment people? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and of course, they are blurting that thing out. But the important thing is that they, they've got this frame around it, that it's important to get short term gains instead of thinking of the long haul. And because the problem with doing that is you're just annoying everyone around you and it's a small world. The second part of the question from David asks, I've also heard that some people have no inner voice. How do they think to themselves? Are these two groups related? Love the show. They absolutely are related. So inner voice is when you're speaking to yourself, but you think it's generated by you. It's different to hearing voices which is a very different kettle of fish, and for some people that's problematic and, and so on. So an inner voice is when you're talking to yourself, arguing with yourself, telling yourself not to say certain things and so on. Uh, do you have an inner voice? Yes, absolutely. I thought everyone had an inner voice. I have very, very little. So I have almost no inner voice. How do you discuss with yourself what you're going to do? I don't. I discuss with other people, as you might have noticed. <laughs> that's true. Okay, that makes sense. So that, that's actually the time often I can hear my own argument is when I'm actually talking out loud. Wow. So I, I, I have thoughts, I have ideas in my head, they pop up, but I have almost no inner voice. What do you do with all the terrible thoughts? Well, they don't exist. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So this is the problem, I've mentioned this before, about meditation. When people say, oh, you have to clear your mind. I, I don't actually have very much in my mind unless I'm speaking. Okay. And, and so, so if your mind was at home, it would be one of those modernist show homes with nothing on the surfaces. Correct. Nothing inside. It'd be a big empty house. Wow. Yes. Mine's cluttered and there's dark <laughs> cupboards that you probably shouldn't go into. <laughs> Which is why I'm sensation seeking. It's, it's why I've always got the radio on, always got TV on, I'm always on the internet or whatever. It's because there's not very much. <laughs> there's so, not much going on up there. There really isn't. There's really not. So self-talk is interesting in that it relates to motivation and to self-control. So that when we speak to ourselves, often we are, oh, don't say that. You shouldn't say this and so on. So it's helping with self-control. So people like me with not very much of an inner voice also tend to be blurters. Not true of me because I'm so unbelievably polite around others, as you will have noticed. Um, <laughs> but also what's interesting about that is when you change the nature of the inner voice, you can change how motivated you are, how much self-control you have. So for example, if you uh, speak to yourself in the third person, so you say, let's suppose I'm worried about giving a talk. Instead of saying to yourself, I'm worried about giving the talk. If you say, Richard's worried about giving the talk, what should he do? You are distancing yourself from that event. And actually, it reduces the worry and anxiety. In the same way, instead of saying, I can do this, you say, you can do this, it makes you more motivated. So changing the nature of the inner voice alters self-control and motivation. I can see going to second person, you can do this, because it's me talking to me, and that's two obviously different people. Saying Marnie's got this just feels a bit sort of like Julius Caesar talking about himself in the third person. Well, it tends to be that when there's something you're worried or stressed about, by putting it out to the third person, it becomes like you, you're looking at yourself. What advice would you give yourself? And that kind of distancing, some people find helpful. So, so I, what I find fascinating, again, from a, 
a sort of psychological perspective from a self-help perspective is that by changing the inner voice, you change self-control and motivation, potentially. Is that because when we we tend to be our own harshest critics? So if you're being quite down on yourself, by making yourself into someone else, you might be kinder to yourself. Yeah, that's exactly it. So there's a well-known sort of self-help uh, technique, which is that when you're being critical of yourself, you just go, well, imagine a friend had got exactly the same sets of issues. What would I say to them? And often you wouldn't be as critical. You'd say terrible things. <laughs> or you say terrible things in your head and then your little inner voice goes, is that kind, Marnie? No, you so, can think it, but just put that in the cupboard and never say it again. So you'd say it to the other person and then you imagine saying that to yourself. Yeah. And by distancing yourself from yourself, as it were, it can help with that process. This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and in this episode, we're answering your questions about anything and everything. And if you want us to keep doing this, we need your help and support. Please review us and share the episodes with your friends, and please subscribe too. It helps other people to find us. So one question is how you get at somebody's inner voice, given it's happening inside their head. And as with all psychology, we don't have a way of climbing inside somebody's head. So you can ask them, but then it's all a bit weird because you get into self-report issues. The other way is that you can ping them during the day. If you've got a smartphone, you, you give them a little ping and you go, what are you thinking at that moment? And if it's, well, I was actually having an inner thought, you can ask people to describe it. And it's a much more accurate way of finding out what's going on inside someone's head. And what you find out is there are big differences. So some people's inner voice is really yes and no and nothing else. Other people, it you know, very, very verbose and goes on uh, forever. Sometimes it's just one voice in there and sometimes it's, it's multiple. And sometimes it's associated with visual imagery. I don't have very much of that either. And sometimes there's not a lot it's going not, on with it's you. Not really, isn't it? It's amazing. Really you're a nothing professor. in there at all. <laughs> and around about thirty to fifty percent of people have something inside their heads. So this is a way, it's a technique that psychologists use to try and get some insight as to what's going on. I think this is fascinating because it's a a field of research that's been ignored because people looked at it on the face and and went well, there's no way you can climb in some, into someone's brain and see what's going on there. And possibly also because people just assume that everyone thinks the same way that they do. And then when you start talking about things like inner voice, you discover that you know people have not only have one or don't have one, but they, there are different flavours of, of inner voice. And, and it's being used in different ways. So some people it's associated with problem solving, others creativity, sometimes self-control, uh, sometimes motivation, emotional regulation, and, and so on. And the early days of psychology, go back to sort of 1900s, they were interested in these sorts of things. And then it moves into what's called behaviourism, which is that they're saying, look, unless you can see a difference in behaviour, we're not going to study it. So all of this subjective stuff goes out the window, and it's only more recently that psychologists have started to move back there. So what you study depends very much on the way in which you perceive the human psyche. And I think you know, an inner voice is absolutely legitimate to look at. There's some really good research. Well, I'm hoping it's good research. There's been a project running for the past year and a half. Fiona McPherson at Glasgow, she's a, a philosopher of perception, and Anil Seth, cognitive neuroscientist, I think, uh, uh, and also perception consciousness researcher down at Sussex. And they've devised this thing called the perception census, which is a series of games and tasks essentially to try and get inside people's minds. 
it's just coming to a close about now when we're talking and then they're going to be digging into the results and they've had lots and lots of people kind of playing around doing these games and hopefully we're going to find out things like what percentage of the country have an inner voice and what kind of thinkers people are and I think it's going to open a big door into when we talk about people being neurodiverse that suggests that there's a neuronormal and we're going to have another window on what normal might be and if, if there even is one. Yeah, I mean, everyone's different on all these different dimensions. Yeah. Um, and of course, philosophically, there's a big argument when, when you perceive the colour red, is it the same as my perception of red and so on? From my perspective, it's always about the practical implications. So yes, it's interesting to go, some people talk to themselves in the first person and then the second person and so on. But what I find interesting is when you change that, suddenly you see differences in motivation or whatever it is. So I'm always interested in the kind of practical implications of this stuff. Should we move on to our next topic? Yes. Our next question is from Melissa Renner in Gulfport, Mississippi, USA, all about the science of nature versus nurture. She's got me. I love this. She says... I absolutely love the show. Thanks, Melissa. Great way to get your question read out. The science of nature versus nurture has always been very intriguing to me, even more so as of late. I'm 49 years old and have recently discovered that I have an older brother. It's absolutely amazing. We get along as if we've known each other all of our lives. The similarities are remarkable for siblings who are not raised in the same household. The younger sister that I was raised with is completely different from me. Thanks for everything. I think the study of nature versus nurture is fascinating and it's decades long sort of going back. The way that people thought that you could unpick nature versus nurture was by looking at twins. So if you look at twins who are fraternal, then they've got different genes. So I've got twin brothers they look very different. They are very different. They'd share the same differences in the numbers of their genes from me. We're all just siblings. Whereas if you've got identical twins, you've got the same genome. And so the idea was if you can unpick differences between identical and fraternal, then you'll work out what's due to nature and what's due to nurture. It's more complicated than that. It turns out to be a lot more complicated. So those early studies, which the ones I was taught even in the mid-80s, was about uh, fraternal identical twins raised together or raised apart. And then that would allow you, as you say, to pick out the difference between nature and nurture. But it's turned out that the two, I mean, in a sense, it's not a meaningful question because the two influence each other all the time. So if you've happened to have a predisposition for extroversion and you start smiling at people and they start smiling back, then suddenly your environment is a lot more positive than somebody who hasn't got that predisposition. So instantly you are, in a sense, creating your own environment, which is then affecting you. So it's one of the many reasons why you know nature and nurture are not quite as easy to pull apart as we might think. And looking from a genetics point of view, there was some research that came out of Iceland, big Reykjavik study, where they it's a kind of quite similar genetic population and they've got pretty much most of the country's genetics in a database. And they've discovered that even if you've got identical twins, there are already differences between them due to environmental factors in the womb. So by the time they're born, they are already on different pathways. And that comes down to something called the epigenome, which, you know, if you think of your genes and your genome as 
kind of notes on a piece of music, it turns out that it's not just the notes, you can play them softer, you can play them louder, and that's all to do with these extra markers, sort of play this note softly, and that's your epigenome. So is it that your environment then affects which parts of your genome come into play, as it were? Yes. So that's another way in which it all gets very complicated. Yes. And the other thing is because we love these stories of, oh, you know, I've got an identical twin I didn't know about. And and now when we come together, we're very similar. What you don't hear is the opposite story, which is, you know, identical twin and come together. We're completely different. (laughs) In a sense, it's not such a fun story. Yeah, there's a bias to that. But annoyingly, Melissa, I'd say that there are obviously going to be genetic reasons why you and your long lost brother are so similar. There will be environmental factors that have sent you on different paths and being raised differently, there will be a lot more environmental factors that could have made for differences. And genetics isn't really that close to linking up the genes to the behaviour. It's still a massive black box. And a really complex one. And of course, as a social psychologist, I think my question would be, why are you interested in that? You see, this is why you're not interested in it. I'm not because, interested in it because, because no one's satisfactorily made the link for Even you. if they had. Even if, so I'm assuming everything, every part of you is to some extent genetically engineered. Everything. Your religious belief and your height and, and whatever, personality. Who cares? That's the bit of you you can't do anything about. To some extent, it's also under your control, all all of those things, and the environment matters and how you see the world matters and and so on. That's the bit you can control. That's the bit you can influence. So I don't understand why there's this hang-up on to what extent am I genetically predetermined to be this type of person. I think we'll ignore that and just focus on the stuff that you've got some sort of control or influence over. That's the interesting stuff. Okay, I guess if you're drilling down, it's because people want to know, well, how much control have I got? So if Some. You, My if answer is always some. No, we can do better. Science can do better than this. So if we accept that everything is nature and nurture, mm-hmm. so if you pick something, hugely controversial topic, intelligence, you want to know, if I work really hard... Could I improve my intelligence or is it largely something that's going to be in my genes and I should just go with the flow? Don't get me started on intelligence. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's a, it's I'm a sorry. human construct. I'm sorry I picked it, intelligence. It's a human construct. So intelligence is measured by intelligence tests, which are created by people who do quite well on intelligence tests. Yeah. And those tests are designed not to change over the lifespan. So, of course, you're going to get a score on an intelligence test, which is not going to change because that's how it's actually been designed, those tests. I would say, why do you care? Yeah. Why not choose something in your life that it has an impact on yourself and others, like how you treat other people, whether you care about them, whether you try and help them or not, whether you feel empathic towards them. And, and yes, of course, the degree to which you can do all of those things is to some extent genetically engineered. Well, let's just forget about that bit because we can't do anything about it. Let's focus on the bit we can do something about. How do you make people more empathic, more caring, whatever? So, I, the, 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 Okay, so you're going for the idealised how do you make people more empathic and caring, but, you know, there are so many other fields in which you could apply this. So if it turns out that people's voting habits correspond to something in their genes, then if you want to target a voting population, you'd quite like to have that information so that you know who is worth targeting. 
That's crazy. You, you'd never do it. You, you would never say, give me everyone's genome because I want to know how they vote. It's really complicated. You might go to a certain upbringing, about factors in terms of upbringing or certain bits of geography or certain people's life experiences. By the way, I'm not saying that the way people vote is to do with their genetics in any way. Some people do. I, I was just saying, yeah, I need to look that up, actually. But I was just picking an example. Yeah, yeah. But it's, my, my argument is always, who cares? Yes, to some extent it will be, but here's all the other stuff you can change. And that's the interesting bit. Otherwise, you go down this route of humans being static and unchanging. And you think that really isn't very interesting. Yes, I know it's true of all of us to some extent, but that's where my interest isn't. My, my interest is in how do you make people more whatever they would like to be in order to help them grow and develop. So that, that's why I'm not particularly excited about the idea of IQ. I just really like the idea that you can look under the bonnet of a human and go, oh, maybe that's playing a part. Push that button a bit. Or you can look under the bonnet and go, how can we make this a better engine? Moving on. The next question. Quite blurty now. <laughs> Such a blurter. My inner voice was saying, "Oh, don't say that." I hadn't got one, so I said I had no opinion on this <laughs> until we started talking about it. Well, thank you, Melissa. You don't know what you've started. Um, next question was sent in by Kimberly Hayes via Twitter. She wants to know why do humans pick their nose? Do other animals do this? Do other animals pick their nose? I don't yes. know. Some monkeys do pick their nose. No. Presumably I, they're, they're able to. That's, this is a big yeah. part of well, this. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, if, a horse. If you're a giraffe, you're yes. a bit stuffed. Yes. What other animals can... You have to have implements to yeah. be able to pick your nose. If you're an elephant, the only implement you've got is your nose. Or another elephant's nose. Or another elephant's nose. A really long stick. Crows um, are really good with sticks, but don't have the right kind of noses to be pickable. Well, I saw this in a different way. Uh, I saw this as a question about habits and habit formation. And there's a few things that are interesting about nose picking. As it's, it's associated, as so many habits are, with anxiety. And so it's a reduction of anxiety. And so I would always argue of under what circumstances are you picking your nose? Because that might tell you when you're anxious in life and how you perhaps deal with that in a more productive way. And second, with habit formation, it's often associated with triggers. So, you know, what, what is triggering you to do that? The snot in your nose. Well, that might be part of it. But there might be certain circumstances. Are you doing it, you know, in, in, in a social situation, for example, or, you know, when you're worried about certain things and that, that will give you some insight. Do people pick their noses in social situations? No, they might feel they need to and they okay. go somewhere else and do it to a non-social situation. OK. Uh, so I think habits are very, very interesting. People can change the habits. It takes a long time because often they're unconscious. And so if you make the habit more conscious and one way of doing that with nose picking is actually just to wear gloves for example, you have to take them off to pick your nose. Suddenly you know, notice, now notice the degree to which you're doing it. That can be helpful. Removal of triggers is always a good one. And the other one is to find a different way of producing anxiety or whatever it is. Uh, so it's what looks on the surface to be a trivial thing, which is nose picking, does get you into some quite interesting areas of psychology, which is habit formation and habit change. And the good news is you can change habits. The bad news is we are a creature of habits. It's quite difficult to do that. But if over the long haul you are conscious, you are mindful, so you notice when you're doing it, you keep away from those sorts of triggers, you come up with other behaviours which fulfil the need but not in the same way, you reward yourself when you do X, not Y, all these things will mean change in habits. So on to our next question here. Oh, this is lovely. 
This is an incredible story, and it's sent in by Malachi Duggan, author of the cookbook Camping Soul Food. And he writes, Hello, Richard. Greetings from Galway, Ireland. Long-time reader and now listener, first-time emailer. I like the sound of this person. After listening to your podcast on coincidences, I wanted to share one with you that involves what could be the greatest card trick of all time, except it was a happy accident. Last May, myself and my 11-year-old daughter Iski were in Sweden for the World Cookbook Awards, which I did not know was a thing. Uh, but congratulations, Malachi was giving a presentation. We brought along a pack of cards to pass the time in airports and restaurants. One part of my speech was about the drawer in your kitchen where you keep all the odds and ends. And I'd say, batteries, Kinder Egg toys, the plunger for the coffee percolator that broke but you might find a use for, a pack of playing cards with only 51 because the Queen of Clubs is missing. That evening, we went for dinner at a ramen noodle restaurant. The waiter told us it would be a bit of a wait, so we pulled out the cards and started playing games and doing magic tricks. As the food arrived, one card fell off the counter to the ground, straight down through a heating vent at our feet. You would not believe what happened next. Straight away, Iski laughed that now we actually had a pack of cards with one missing. Then we sorted through the cards to see which one it was, Sharpie in hand to write on the Joker, and it was the Queen of Clubs. Honestly, this was a total coincidence and I wish I'd set it up to impress her. After we ate our food, we set about tackling that day's wordle and the word of the day on the 27th of May was ramen. Keep up the great work. We're big fans in the house. Oh, that's very sweet. And a great series of coincidences there. Love it. It is. I mean, it's amazing. Of course, if the story was we got to the missing card and it was the three of diamonds, then we'd never hear the story. So it, it's wonderful that there's something meaningful, that these two things coincide. Presumably it's 52 to one, roughly. Well, it's so it's still a coincidence that having given a speech where you talk about having a deck of cards with one missing, you then acquire a deck of cards with one missing. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Then you've got the one in 52, that it's the exact card that you mentioned. Then you've got the wordle on top. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's very hard if you're that person, if you've won the jackpot, uh, if you won the lottery like this person, to then go, oh, there's no meaning to this at all. So it's lovely, lovely coincidence. I have done a little bit of work on what's called population stereotypes, which are the, the fact, I mean, here the Queen of Clubs actually isn't a very commonly selected card. When you ask people to choose a card, they often say Ace of Spades. And then you go, oh, no, don't choose that. Everyone chooses it. And they switch to the Queen of Hearts. No. Yeah. And what's lovely is that in the 1920s, someone did a mass ESP experiment. So they said to the whole of the nation, I'm focusing on some playing cards. Name any playing card that comes to mind. And when they did that, those were the two most frequently mentioned cards, even in the 1920s. So for some reason, these kind of stereotypes have survived the test of time. I wish we could do something like that. Well, you could, you could do it. You could say, I think of a number between one and 50. There's two digits involved and both of them are odd and different. So what's if everyone thinks for number between one and 50, two digits, both of them odd and different, and I'm getting the impression 35, no, 37. Oh, my God, that's there we go. <laughs> there we go. So 
So everyone thinks of 30, there's not that many options, actually, when you, when you phrase it like that. So these things where we like to think that our decisions are totally random and so on, actually, there's, there's quite a lot underlying. Saying that doesn't account for this coincidence, because it's Queen of Clubs, not, not, not Queen of Hearts. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful story. But uh, yeah, it does get us into what are called population stereotypes, which are, which are lovely. Thank you, Maliki. And Iski. So in this episode, we've looked at the psychology of blurting and how you can change what's called the argumentative frame in order to reduce blurting if you want to. We've looked at inner voices and discovered that you don't have one. And more importantly, how you can change your inner voice to improve your self-control and motivation. We've looked at nature versus nurture and discovered that actually it's always both. And we've looked at coincidences and discovered that occasionally marvellous coincidences do happen. And how we're sometimes more predictable than we think, especially when it comes to the number 37. From Podomo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at wisemanpod at podomo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.